As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and in that and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Thanks, God, for his word. Thank you, Ruth, for bringing us God's word. Good afternoon, everybody. It's great to see you all. My name is Glenn Burns. I am the Assistant Minister here at Grace Church Broccoli. And we're just going to be continuing our series in First Thessalonians as we look at God and his people. But before we begin to look at God's word, let me just pray as we see God's guidance and wisdom as we turn to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is truth and your word is light. Lord, help it to light the path for us so that we may know the way to live for you, to honour you, to please you, and to glorify you. Lord, help us by your Spirit to know your word and to point us to Christ through its truth. Lord, speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The poet John Lydgate once said this, You can please some of the people all the time, You can please all of the people some of the time, but you can't please people all of the time. My question to you here this afternoon is this. Who are you seeking to please? Who are you seeking to please? Now, like a dog to its owner, the person you seek to please most implies loyalty. And with loyalty comes faithfulness. Now, to attempt to please somebody all of the time requires complete devotion. And in fact, we are warned today not to become people pleasers in our society, as doing this will mean that we surrender who we are in our character and our personality in order to make someone else happy. But what about being a God pleaser? What can we do to please God? Well, so far in 1 Thessalonians, we have seen how Paul encourages the church in chapter 1 to demonstrate the marks of a healthy church. They are encouraged by Paul's example in chapter 2 to show the marks of an authentic church. 
And they are called to be a caring church in chapter 3. Loving one another selflessly. And lifting each other up in prayer. Just as Paul, Silas and Timothy earnestly prayed for them. And so as we come into chapter 4 here. Paul gently challenges the Thessalonians to live for pleasing God. Now to please God is not the same as people pleasing. People pleasing is going above and beyond to make others happy at the expense of ourselves. But to please God is to live in the rhythms and patterns of that God had designed us and created us to live in. And that is this. It's to know him. It's to follow him as to trust him. We are to know him as our creator. We are to follow him as Lord. And we are to trust him as our hope in life and death. In verse 1 here of chapter 4, Paul reminds the church that they know how to live this life. They have already been instructed in verse 2 through the authority of Jesus their Lord and Saviour. And to follow these instructions is the mark of a faithful church. But there is a problem here that Paul wants to address as well. You see, at that time there was false teaching from those who didn't speak in the authority of Jesus Christ. These people were causing those who were in the church in Thessalonica at that time to forget what it means to please God. And because of this, they became an unhealthy blend of fearful idle and frantic busybody and people. Now this behaviour wasn't loving. But instead it was divisive and it was threatening to break up the church as it would lead to a lack of faithfulness that displeases God. And Paul wants to remind them here of what they already know in Christ so that they can grow more and more in living for God in faithfulness. And so we're going to be thinking today about what the marks of a faithful church are. And what that means to please God vertically and how that affects us horizontally. But even if you're here today and you're not a Christian, well can I encourage you to listen and to see what is so different about living the Christian life. And why it might be appealing to you. And so as we think about what it means to be a faithful church, and we're going to see the marks of a faithful church, there are two points I want us to think about to help us understand this. Firstly, we're going to see how a faithful church commits to God in in holiness and purity. And then secondly, we're going to see how a faithful God commits to each other in love and service. So let's think about this first point here, that a faithful church commits to God in holiness and purity. And we see that here in verses 3 to 8. And just as we've seen in verse 1, the Thessalonians were reminded that they were instructed how to live in order to please God. These instructions, look at verse 8 with me. It says that they are not to be rejected as they were passed on in the authority of the Lord. And Paul knows that these Thessalonians are living in these truths. And he wants to encourage them by continuing to live in these trusts. So that they will grow more and more to know God's will in their lives. But what is it that when I say 
God's will. Well, look at verse 3 with me here. Verse 3 says this, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. They're to be sanctified. But what does this mean? It's not a word that we use in everyday language. But the word sanctified here is actually used again in verse 7. Now, we can't see it here in verse 7, but Paul uses it in the Greek. And he uses it to describe that we have in English here, to live a holy life. It's being set apart from the world and everything that is impure and sinful about it. Now, the Bible tells us that before we knew Christ as Lord, we weren't sanctified. In fact, we were the opposite. We were filthy scum because of sin. And sin separates us from God who is holy. And God allows nothing sinful or impure near him. And our sin meant that we were only good for the dump. Now, when I was a child, me and my dad used to visit the dump. (laughs) And it was a huge landfill site outside the village where people would take anything that's too big for the wheelie bin. But nine times out of ten, we always ended up bringing back something instead of what we left behind. Have you had that experience? When I was a kid, I actually remember getting a go-kart from the dump. We went there, we found it, there was two screws missing from it, and somebody thought, well, that's no good, I'll throw it out. But we brought it home, we cleaned it up, we fixed it, it was as good as new, and it was fit for purpose once again. Now think about this. Because of who you are, your sin, your filthy nature, you're no good to God. Your destination is the dump. You're to be thrown out because you're no use to anybody. But through the good news of Jesus, when you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, God takes you, he cleans you up, He makes you his prized possession. You're no longer scum. You belong to him. And his will, his desire for you is this. Look at verse 7. You're to live a holy life, living in the will of God, that which is pleasing to him. Set apart from the activity And the business of this world. You see God's desire. Is that we are to be sanctified. And that means we remain holy in his sight. And we avoid anything that makes us impure. And we're told here of one way to avoid what is impure and wrong. Throughout verses 3 to 8. Verse 4. We should learn to control our body in a way which is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust. We're not to take advantage of others. And all of that is summed up in verse 3. We should avoid sexual immorality. Of any kind which is displeasing to God. Now back then, Thessalonica was an early centre of the Christian faith. But it was also a capital of the Roman province of which it was found. And the Romans lived in what was called by historians a sexually liberated age. And Paul knew that his brothers and sisters in Christ would feel the looming shadow of living in such a period of time. 
And so Paul lays out a mandate here for avoiding sexual immorality. Look at verse 4. Control your body in a way that is holy and honorable. Don't be like those around you who don't know God. But also, verse 6. Don't wrong or take advantage of anyone. I'm speaking in the context of sex here. Because God will punish those who commit such acts. And we see the heart of why God doesn't want us to live in such a way. Firstly, we are not to identify ourselves with those in the world who behave in such a way that reject God. And secondly, those whom God has made in his image, and even more so, who those who God has set his love upon and brought into his church as people, we are not to objectify them or treat them in such a way that is unloving and unpleasing and in a way that only seeks to give us pleasure. Now we can be very quick to read these commands by Paul and think, well this isn't for me. I don't struggle with these things. Or there are still some things that I can do by myself and that won't hurt anybody. So what's the big deal? Well, in the 60s and 70s, some of you might remember it well, we had what was called the sexual revolution where sex suddenly became this transactional deal. It was no longer based upon love or the consummation of a union between husband and wife, but it was all about one-night stands, quick flings, and just a bit of fun. Now fast forward to today. The consequences of some of those actions are catching up with people. And even here today in the 21st century, the ways in which we identify ourselves in our relationships, our orientation, our gender, and our desire to be accepted for who we are, it's all changed once again. Ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, who lived before the time Paul wrote this letter, he taught that it was erotic desire or sex that leads to love. And to have sex is a desire to love and to be loved. But how are we rightly to understand who we are in the eyes of God? Yes, we are sinful. But despite our sin, God loved us. And Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian church was that they are to abound more and more in the love of God that has already given them given to them in abundance, and they are to put their trust in him despite the affliction they face as a church who goes against the grain of society, society who believes that love can be earned in another way. Their faith, the church's faith, was not only rooted in the knowledge that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but that their hope lay in the certain knowledge that Jesus will come back again one day to rescue those who belong to him. They didn't need to find love anywhere else. They've already received the love of God which was made known to them through the ministry of Paul and Timothy and in which they find their identity in Christ. But when we start to seek love through other pathways, we begin to set aside the love that God calls us to live in. And to live in our own pursuit of love means that we begin to do everything we can to make ourselves feel good. And the more we pursue a lust for life outside of the will of God, 
The further we find ourselves living in a life that doesn't just displease God, but we also addictively crave more and more the satisfaction we lack in our souls. And we fill it with the wrong ways. But in God, through the good news of Jesus, not only do we find true satisfaction, we also begin to discover our identity and our motive for living. We are to live a holy life. Where we identify as a follower of Jesus, and we are to live in such a way that demonstrates that identity and not the opposite. And we live in accordance with God's Holy Spirit who inhabits our life through God's will and he makes us sanctified. He sets us apart from the world and he sets us apart for God. Because God has rescued the church through the gospel, those of us here in the church should seek to respond to all that God has done for us in Christ by being faithful to him. And if we decide to play the field elsewhere and behave like the pagans and act in such a way that is impure, not only do we intoxicate ourselves with sinful lust, but we also show a lack of faithfulness towards God who has given us so much and who wants us to grow in his grace. The warning that we see in verse 6, that the Lord will punish all who commit such sins. Now Paul might be speaking to a specific incident here within the church in Thessalonica, but the connotations are still clear for us today. We do not belong to sin. And so we must be careful not to divulge ourselves in sin, but to rest in grace and to strive to grow in holiness through the help and strength of, verse 8, the Holy Spirit who is given to us by God and not to reject him. Otherwise, the Lord will reject us and he will punish us. You see, we are to act in control of our bodies, which is holy and honourable. And God's will for us is to grow, to live holy and pure lives, not controlled by the lust of the flesh, but in the freedom of the spirit to take control of life itself. And so a faithful church commits itself to God in holiness and purity. But there's another aspect to the marks of a faithful church. As we come to our second point, that a faithful church commits to each other in love and service. And look at verse 9 with me here. We see here in verse 9 that Paul feels no need to explain how to love the church. Paul says, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Of course, this love taught by God is through the gospel. And so this love propels the church to commit themselves to each other. And Paul is encouraged to hear that their knowledge of love in verse 10 has overflowed not just in Thessalonica, but to all of Macedonia. But just as Paul urged the church in verse 1 to please God, he urges them to grow more and more in their love to each other and to serve each other as well. 
But look at verse 11 with me. They're not to do this to be well known. Instead, Paul gives them this command. Look at verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Their godly ambition is to live a quiet life. Now, as a young Christian, I remember reading Crazy Love by Francis Chan. And at the end of the book, it had all these stories about these people who would go above and beyond to show love to their neighbours. And I'll be honest, there were some incredible stories. And their intention was to inspire you. For example, there was one family who, every Thanksgiving over in the U.S., They would make a ton of pancakes and they would go out loading these pancakes up in a wagon and they would feed all the homeless in their town. Now, when I read that, and my experience and many others' experience from people who I knew read the book, we were all thinking this. How can we ever do anything like that? That's just way too much. There's no way we have to go that far in order to show love to each other. It's just so demanding. It's overwhelming. How can I do that by myself? Well, I think it was part of the culture at that time to have lofty expectations of believers. The culture at that time asked them to sell out and do everything for Christ. And we've seen this in um, the, the language and the things said by speakers by musicians of that time we have people like um, um, switchfoot who would say they they were telling christians that to dare them to move we have preachers like david platt who were telling people to be radical with their faith toby mack was telling people to be sold out like a jesus freak and delirious and martin smith were telling people inspiring them to be history makers in the land and expect to do great things But is Paul saying that here though? Look at verse 11 again. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands just as we told you. Now Paul's not seeking to quench the spirit or dampen the spirits of believers here who will go and do incredible things. And there have been people throughout history who have done amazing things. But they didn't go out there expecting to do those things for themselves. And we have to remember the context of what was happening in the church here. There was a restlessness among the church because of the false teaching that was spread. And as a result, there were some people in one camp who got lazy and did absolutely nothing. And there were others in this other camp here who were frantically going about making it their mission to solve everyone else's problems. But this is not loving behavior. The church is supposed to act and serve in love. And so the believers within the church must go about their businesses quietly without fuss. Whether you're in education, you work in manual labor, or you sit in an office. Your day-to-day life, verse 12, is to reflect the glory of Christ and the love of God that is faithful, honorable, and pure. And as you do so, you win the respect of others and you're not dependent on anyone except God. Now compare this to what happened back in Acts 17 when the church was first formed. 
The Jews formed a mob because of the gospel and they attacked the house of Jason, taking them from that home to the city officials and they accused them of all sorts. And the believers in that instant lost their status in society, but they remained faithful to God. And they could have done anything to regain that respect. But Paul wants them not only to remain faithful to God, but also faithful to each other. And to grow in this faithfulness by love. And when we think about how we can faithfully serve each other in the church, Paul reminds us how as he signs off his letter in chapter 5 verses 12 to 18. He gives these final instructions. And let's just read that together. It's on page 1188 of your church Bibles. We're to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you, to hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. We are to live in peace with each other. And we are to warn those who are idle and disruptive, to encourage the disheartened, to help the weak and be patient with everyone. We're to make sure that, sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but we are to always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. We are to rejoice always, praying continually to God, praying for each other, bringing our needs for each other before God, and we are to give thanks. For all that God has given us as the church. Because, going back to verse 1 and verse 3, this is God's will for you in Christ. If you want to learn how to grow more and more in faithfulness, then we should seek to practice these things and help each other out of love. It's love that motivates our hearts to do what is right. It's love that helps us to choose that which is honourable and holy, which is God-given and is pleasing to him. At some point in this week, why don't you take the time to think about and reflect on these things. Think about what you might struggle in doing. Think about where you see others practising these gifts as well. How can you encourage them to grow more and more in loving and serving each other in the church? How can you encourage them to continue being faithful to God in holiness and purity? And how might you yourself be challenged to serve in the church with the gifts that God has given you? And if you're sitting here and you're not a believer, then can I ask one thing? What is it that has brought you here today? If it's being part of a Sunday service where you're sitting with people who love and care for each other, and you feel that love, then ask yourself, how is it that they know how to do these things? They've been taught by God how to love. For God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were scum and we were only good for the rubbish heap, Christ Jesus died for us on the cross to redeem us from sin And to redeem us from the dump that is hell. He cleaned us up. And he made us his own. This is love for us. 
And it's his love for you if you believe it to be true. But if you haven't experienced love in the church before, then I'm sorry that that has been the case. It's hard whenever churches don't seek to both love God in purity and love each other in grace. And if you've ever felt the blows of that, please don't seek to find your meaning of love in anything other than Jesus, even in the church. Because although the church is the beloved of Jesus, although the church is that which has been bought by God, it fails in comparison to much of Christ's love for us all. The church, for as good as she might be, she can only reflect it in partial glory. But it's in knowing Jesus that we can find true love and satisfaction for our souls. And it's only in Christ Jesus that we can know what it means to know God, to live for God, and to please God. So as I close, we were created to please God as God seeks to please us in enjoying Him. And we can please Him through faithfulness in Christ This faithfulness is to be a faithful church that commits herself to God in holiness and purity and a faithful church that commits herself each to each other in love and service. And when we do both things, we glorify God in the community of the church and the church will glorify God in the community that they find themselves in. So who will we please? Will we please Everybody, some of the time, maybe. Will we please everyone all of the time? Definitely not. But will we please God all of the time? Possibly. If we seek to know him through Christ and to live by his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that it is a huge challenge for us to know what it means to please you as we find ourselves living in this world day by day. We realize the struggles of what it means to live in a broken society, as not only do we feel the pain of this world, but Lord, we recognize the fault lines within ourselves. We recognize that we are not good, that we are not righteous, Lord, but that sin comes from ourselves. Lord, help us to search our hearts day by day. To know that we are impure people. But Lord, to know that Christ has paid for our sins in full. And as we seek to follow you day by day. Lord, that you take us from the rubbish heap. And you renew us by your spirit. Lord, cleanse us and make us fit for your person, our purpose. To be known by you to, by you. to be used by you. And to glorify you day by day. Lord, help us not to do these things just individually. But as a church as a body where Christ is our head. Lord, may we follow Jesus' will in our lives, and Lord, may we seek to serve him as we serve one another in love and in care and in service towards each other. Lord, help us to do these things, not for our own sake, not for our glory, but for your fame and for your glory alone. Lord, we want to make you known here in Broccoli. We want to make you known here to each other. And we want you to be known everywhere in the world. Lord Jesus, we give you the glory now in your holy name. Amen.